0: Find your way in your Bibles to the Book of Acts, I'm taking a little break from the Gospel of John this morning. This is a message I actually kind of wanted to give last week, but I thought might be um, difficult breaking up uh, John chapter 11 um, into s- smaller bits than I would have liked. Um, so I thought to continue the story of John 11, it'd be good to finish out the story of. The raising of Lazarus. So we're in Acts chapter 20, and uh, I'm going to begin reading verse 18. Acts chapter twenty. Let's start in verse seventeen. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. When they had come to him, he said to them, "You yourselves know how, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving with you, serving you, uh, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews." How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life as of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves. This is the verse we'll focus on this morning. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood." I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in from among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we come before You and ask for Your help as we think through this important topic, this important teaching that is laid out in Your Word concerning the church. Lord, I pray that You would give in each and every born again believer in this room a passionate love for your church that we would be devoted to her to her well being to her good of course the church in general the church universal but even more specifically this local church Lord we ask for your grace we pray for those who are strangers of grace this morning who do not know you, that they would bow before the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, in whose name we pray. Amen. Some of you are familiar with a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was not an evangelical Christian as we would understand that term today, but he was a courageous man nonetheless. He was a pastor uh, during the time of Nazi Germany. And uh, he was noted for being arrested in the midst of a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And it was in the context of him being imprisoned and away from church family, that he wrote a book about church, about life together in the church. It's a devotional book, and in that small little book, he writes these words, "...the man who fashions a vision of what the church ought to be demands that it be realized by God himself and others." He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands a damnant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community. And then he says these piercing words. Anyone who loves the dream of community more then the Christian community itself, warts and all, becomes a destroyer of the latter even though the devotion of the former is faultless and the intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Did you catch that? He said anyone who loves the dream or the idea of the church and not the actual church itself winds up actually destroying the church. And so I have a simple aim this morning, that you would grow in your love and devotion for the actual church. For the church, warts and all. Now, why is it that sometimes people withdraw themselves from the church or have a kind of disdained view of, of the church, there's probably a variety of reasons. These are some that I've thought of. Sometimes people have been hurt by others in the church, and and, and part of me is tempted to want to quickly dismiss that. I mean, we we live in an age in which uh, you know everybody is so sensitive about everything, and you know sometimes you just got to suck it up, right? But the reality is, is that tremendous evil does sometimes take place from people who profess the name of Christ and even are in positions of church leadership. The local news just recently read of somebody who's a youth pastor at a church not that far from here who abused children under his care. I mean, what a wicked, evil thing. Now... Granted, a person shouldn't respond by that by disdaining all the church. I mean, after all, Jesus Himself warned about hypocrites and religious leaders and uh, who we called broods of vipers and whatnot. But nonetheless, in, in a sense, we can understand how somebody can unfortunately paint a broad brush with everyone in the church because of some wicked activity. Another reason might be there's so many... Problems within the church. There are. The reality is when, when, when the Lord Jesus speaks and exhorts husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, uh, He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might wash her with the water of the Word and might present her to Himself without spot, Or wrinkle. The assumption is that the church today still has spots and wrinkles, but one day the church will be without spot and wrinkles. So there's problems within the church, but the reality is, is that should not negate our love and devotion to the church. There's problems in marriage too, right? Does that mean you say, "Well, I got problems in, you know, in my marriage, so I'm just going to give up"? No. I'm not saying that the commitment to a local church is as high as the commitment to marriage, but nonetheless, we need to work through problems and seek to resolve them. Some people might think, well, I don't need the church to grow. And that may be somebody's attitude. I can, you know, I can listen to John Piper online. I can listen to John MacArthur, all the greatest preaching in the world. I can grow from that. I don't need a local church. But the reality is, when we look at the New Testament, the church is is a family. It's a family. And, and is it possible that people can grow up without families and not turn out juvenile delinquents? Yes, but. Nonetheless, if you look at the typical profile of a juvenile delinquent, you will often find they didn't have a family. And so the church is supposed to be a place where there's development and nurturing and growth and care that takes place just as there is in a biological family. And that's the normal place in which growth and development and help takes place so that somebody can turn out like a productive member of society. In a similar way, to be a productive Christian, you need the church. Some may say, well, the church takes away from family time. And there may be a nugget of truth with this. Um, Some churches have so many programs You know, there's programs every night of the week that if you involved yourself in every church activity, it might be uh, causing you to neglect some of your responsibilities to your own biological family. But it is interesting when we read the Scripture, I would say there is a sense that the New Testament teaches the priority of the church family even over your biological family. That may sound like a shocker. Now, what I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we're ever excused to neglect our responsibilities to our biological family because of responsibilities to our church family. But, you remember that one occasion in Matthew chapter 12 when somebody comes to Jesus in verse 46 through 50 and they say that His biological family is close by? They say... uh it says his mothers and his brothers were standing outside and seeking to speak to him and someone said to him behold your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you and what comes off jesus's lips quite frankly sounds rude right he says but jesus it says but jesus answered the one who was telling him says who is my mother and who are my brothers And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he says, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Kind of shocking, right? Jesus seems to place a priority of the eternal family over the temporal family. Because I mean, after all, isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19 when, when He's talking about in heaven, there, there's not going to be any marrying or giving in marriage, but it'll be like an eternal family without procreation. So, there can be a variety of reasons. I'm sure you can think of more reasons why persons may kind of withdraw themselves from the church. But I want to give you three, what I believe are compelling reasons for you to grow in your love and commitment to the church. The first is that she is owned by Christ. She's owned by Christ. Hopefully you're able to see that in Acts chapter 20. Just to give you a little bit of the context, I read it for you, but the Apostle Paul has summoned the elders of the church in Ephesus to him, and he, he, he thinks that he's not going to see them again, so he's giving them kind of like his last sermon. His last sermon that's that's devoted to them, and these are leaders within the church, And uh, he, he gives them these exhortations, but in verse 28, he gives them this exhortation. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. So here, he likens the church to a flock. Uh, That's one of the images that the New Testament uses when speaking of the church as a a flock. We saw it in John chapter 10, remember? When Jesus says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold, they will hear My voice, they will become one flock with one shepherd. And so, He's telling these elders, who are evidently also shepherds, He says, keep watch over the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So notice, who owns the church? He calls it the church of God. I take that as a possessive genitive, if you like grammar. He's saying that God owns the church, and we can broaden that out even a little bit more when we look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when Jesus says to His disciples, I will build My church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So whose church is it? It's Jesus' church. It's God's church. Which makes sense because He's the head of the church, right? And so this should... our love and commitment to the church. Why? Because it's owned by Jesus. It's owned by God. That its value in a sense is a derived value because of Jesus' ownership of it. Perhaps an illustration might be helpful. Imagine if you came into my study and uh, you picked up a Chalk holder, remember those chalk holders, that's the piece of plastic that holds the piece of chalk so you don't have to actually touch the chalk. Imagine if you touch this chalk holder and I snapped at you and said, put that down. And I said, whoa, okay. So what's what's the deal with the chalk holder? Well, that's not just any rinky-dink chalk holder. That chalk holder was used by Jim Trestle to write plays during the 2002 Fiesta Bowl, in which the Ohio State Buckeyes beat the Miami Hurricanes for the national championship. It was touched by Jim Trestle on that magnificent day. And because of that, it has tremendous significance. Because it was owned by Him. It has, a, in a sense, a derived worth because it's connected to Him. So that's not just any rinky-dink chalk holder. Well, in a similar way, you might look at the church and say, hmm, that's not a very well-oiled machine. There's lots of problems. Oh, but my friend... It's owned by Jesus. And it's His project. And yes, it's not a completed project. Yes, one day, the bride of Christ will be without spot and without wrinkle. It is a work working project and it has all kinds of problems and warts and cranky people and all that. Yet nonetheless, it's owned by Him. He owns it. There's a professor... At the Master Seminary. He was a Greek exegesis professor, and he was notorious that anytime he also pastored a local church in the area, anytime somebody would ask him, So, how's things at your church? he would immediately ask the question, Whose church? And, and, and this question had become almost famous at the school that it, it forced everybody to think. Who owns the church? He was saying, it's not my church, it's Jesus' church. Jesus is the head of the church. The Pope is not the head of the church. The Archbishop of Canterbury is not the head of the church. Matt, Chris, and Dale are not the head of the church. John MacArthur is not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. He owns her. And if you love Jesus, you should love His church. It's His church. And again, imagine if you were working on some kind of project out in your garage and somebody's visiting and they say, what's that piece of junk? (laughs) You would be mildly offended by that, right? I'm working on that. It's not done. But it's my project. In a similar way, the church is Jesus' project. He owns her. And so, friend, do you love the church? Do you love not merely the church in the abstract or the idea of church, but the local church that you're committed to? She's owned by Jesus. To despise her is to despise Jesus. Does that mean that the church is above criticism? No. But all criticism of the church should be constructive criticism, not destructive criticism. There is a difference. Because of your love, you want to see her improved, but not torn down. Not beaten down. When I was in South Africa, it was the first time I ever heard the term squatter. We would come to certain villages and there would just be thousands of little huts and we would ask, what's, what's going on over there? Well, there's squatters over there. In other words, these are people who just Temporarily decided, I'm going to make this my home. They don't own the property. They're not committed to the property. They're not working for the development of the property. They're just camping out on somebody else's yard. Well, in a very real sense, sometimes there can be church squatters. They just camp out. They're, they're not... They don't own the property. They're not part of it. They don't belong. But they're just, just squatting for a little bit. Well, you need to find a home. And be part of it. Not only ought we to love and devote, be devoted to the church because she's owned by Christ, but also she's bought by Christ. Did you notice that? In verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Now this is a fascinating passage. Well, well the Apostle Paul and, and Luke who's recording this is not necessarily, I think, trying to give a discourse upon Jesus being God, it's something that's just assumed here, right? He calls it the church of God, which He, and if you look at the nearest antecedent, what should the He refer to? It's God, right? He, God, purchased with His own blood. Now, it obviously raises some questions because God doesn't have blood, right? But but obviously the point is, is that the person of Jesus who has two natures does indeed have a human nature that has real flesh and blood, but he is also God Himself in the flesh. And so, Paul speaks of the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. He's talking about this church as being bought, purchased by the blood of Jesus. And obviously, the blood of Jesus is a reference to the death of Jesus. That it was through that glorious and climactic crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ that in that act, He was laying down His life on behalf of His own people. And this, by the way, is to be encouragement for the church leaders there to kind of put a lump in their throat for them to understand this church that is being placed into their care as stewards. It is not only owned by Jesus, it was bought by Jesus with His very own precious blood. That's amazing. That. Should put a lump in the throat of any church leader, pastor, elder. Christ's people have been bought by his own blood. And it's interesting the word that he uses for purchase is not the idea of purchasing with a view to setting free. It's more the idea of per- purchasing with a view to owning, and which makes sense within this very context because he calls it the Church of God. And this is not a shocker. this is taught elsewhere in the New Testament, First Peter 1:18. Peter writes, "Knowing that you were redeemed, you were not redeemed with perishable things, like gold or silver, from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ." Revelation 5 9, and they sing, they're singing in heaven a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tongue and people and nation. Now, I want to be careful at this point. Some people, we you know, we live in the, the self-esteem cult of today that the most important thing about you is what you feel about yourself and you need to think yourself very important. Sometimes that bleeds into the church culture and, and people will teach things like, I know how special and important I am because Jesus died for me. And... I want to be careful with that because the reality is is actually Jesus' death for you teaches you how wretched and sinful you are. That you needed somebody to die for you. Yet, there is a sense because God's people are purchased and bought by Him, there is a, a derived dignity that His people do have. Because He bought us. We're His. He purchased us. And so... In a sense, the value of the church is heightened, not because of who she is in and of herself, but because who she was purchased by. The glorious Lord Jesus. In other words, Jesus didn't die so that you would think much of yourself, but that you would think much of Him. So we must understand, friends, that it is through Calvary's hill That Jesus purchased his church. And and this should cause us to love and be devoted to her. John Bunyan says, the English Baptist who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, sin is the daring of God's justice the jeering of His patience, the slighting of His power, and the contempt of His love. And that's why Jesus had to die. It's because of our sin. Joel Beeky says, says at Calvary, there it is there that Christ hangs over the naked flame of God's pure holiness. That's... What Jesus did, He he hung over the naked flame of God's pure holiness to absorb God's holy wrath so that you and I can be purchased and be part of His own particular people. And so this should cause us to have the church, His people, as a special place in our heart. Because the church is bought by the blood of Jesus. Imagine a person traveling across the globe to make a special purchase of something. Yesterday I was looking, I don't know what got me on this track, but looking at exquisite fountain pens and there was this particular fountain pen I don't write with a fountain pen but I don't know why I was thinking about it this particular fountain pen called the sailor and 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 I looked on their website and it's, it's only sold in one place in the United States of America in Appleton Wisconsin I thought wow that's interesting you know, some people travel far just to, to, to purchase something because that's the only place you can get it. Well, imagine the eternal God coming from an outer world into this world in space and time, being born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those under the law. We say that must be a significant purchase that he's making. Indeed it is. The church is bought by him. And again, look how this look look how this motivates Paul in the following verses in verse twenty-nine in following of Acts twenty. Because the church is Jesus' church. Because the church is bought by His blood. Notice His passion for the church in verse 29. He says, I know that that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, and you can just imagine Paul pointing his bony finger at these church leaders, these elders in Ephesus, therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He's saying, people are going to come and they're going to bring their false teaching and they're going to seek to destroy the church, and he points at them and says, men, you are on the watchtower, your job is to protect the sheep, to shoo away the wolves To make sure all the sheep are fed and cared for. Why? They've been bought by the blood of Jesus. They're owned by Jesus. Will you love her? Well, yes, I understand that Paul is talking to church leaders, but also everyone who is part of the church, you are part of the blood-bought people, and you should love her dearly. So, friend, what is your... Commitment and devotion to the local church. Are you a come late, leave early kind of person? Come to get your Sunday sermon and dive out? Or do you see the church as part of the, the incubator for growth and development? The family in which maturity and development takes place the people who've been bought by the Savior's blood. Friends, our love for one another should run deep within the church family. Last week, I think I experienced something of this. As the Cleveland Browns were trouncing over the Pittsburgh Steelers. I thought... About my brothers and sisters who are Steelers fans. I thought of Rob. And my heart melted in pity and love. Just for a little bit. And then I celebrated. But there was that little bit of pity. And concern. Why? Because... My love for my brothers runs deeper even than our favorite sports team affiliations. Well, we should love the bride, the church, because she's owned by Christ. She's bought by Christ. And thirdly, she's related to Christ. And and what I mean by related to Christ is, is particularly... The church is the family of Christ. For this, we need to turn to the book of Ephesians. It's interesting. Sinclair Ferguson, in his helpful book on the church that he recently published, mentions that all the different images of the church, like bride, body, building, flock, They're all images, they're all metaphors that in some ways they're similarities, but in some ways they're difference. But then then he points out that when it comes to one of the the commonly spoke of pictures, it's not so much the church is like her, the church is, namely, a family. The church is not like a family, the church is a family. Uh, Look at chapter 2 of Ephesians Chapter chapter 2 and verse 19 says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Now, now he uses a couple different pictures here of citizens, which suggest kingdom in verse 20. He's going to speak of the church being a, the, a temple of a building, but particularly at the end of verse 19, he speaks of we are of God's household household, God's family, and he picks up on this imagery, it's it's actually something he's drawing from earlier on in this chapter, when we look in chapter 3 and verse 14, when he's praying for the church at Ephesus, he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth Derives its name. And then he continues with this prayer. So notice he's talking to the Father. He's saying, I bow my knees from the Father, from whom every family. And then, so notice there's a sense, there's a a sense in which there's local families, but they're all part of the big family that's in heaven and on earth. Namely, those in heaven are part of the big family. And then there's local manifestations of the family below. And all these families are deriving their name from the Father. Just as in tradition, in Western culture, children bear the name of their Father. So all of God's children bear the name of the Father and are part of His family. And so that's that's what I think Ferguson means when he's suggesting that 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 family is not merely a metaphor but it's it's a reality. The church is a family. In the early church the 2nd 3rd century The early Christians were sometimes accused of incest by the pagans around them. It's a strange accusation. But what would happen would be the unbelievers around them would hear about Brother Bob planning to marry Sister Susie, and they would think, He's marrying his sister? That's disgusting not understanding that Sister Susie and Brother Bob were brothers and sisters, not biologically, but in the Lord. The Apostle John uses this language even in John chapter 2 when he speaks some within the church who are fathers and some who are young men and some who are children. The church is a family. And imagine with me for a moment, if you came up to me after the service and said, Matt, you know, you're a real swell guy, but I really can't stand your family. That's not going to go well. Those are my people, right? And yet, somehow... Christians today can get away. I love Jesus, but I, you know, I don't like the church. No, that's Jesus' family. What, what? Now, I understand some people might have had uh, difficult times growing up in their biological families. Tragically, we live in the day and age of the destruction of the nuclear family. That it's more and more an anomaly uh, for somebody to grow up in a household with two parents. But nonetheless, even it's interesting, even as a, as a foster parent, uh, one of the things they, they teach you, and there's not much good to learn from foster classes, but one of the helpful tidbits they do teach you is that it doesn't matter how awful the situation that child came from, that was their home. And they want to be there rather than with you. And, and, and that's true even with, with each of us and our families. We might not have had the best upbringing, but that was home for us. Those are our people. In a similar way, the church, the spiritual family, yes, they're, they're, there's grumpy people, yes, there's cranky people, yes, there's people that can be difficult, but those are our people. That's your family. You belong to them. And this is where growth and development and maturing are to take place. So family in its its best form should communicate love, commitment, warmth, devotion to one another, safety, protection, a place you want to be. I think of my own family gatherings. I like to be with my family. We should like to be with our family. I was talking with one mother some time ago and she was talking about her children, how they would often compete and fight against one another. And then she paused and said, but I know they die for one another. They bicker all day long, but they would die for one another. And Paul continues in this prayer in Ephesians. Drop your eyes down to Ephesians 3.16-17. As Paul is praying for this family, he prays that, that you may be filled up with all up to all the fullness of God. Did you notice Paul's prayer? He's praying that they would be rooted and grounded in love and that they would know the height, the depth, the width, the length of what I think he's talking about the love of Christ. In other words, the the church is to be immersed in love from God, from the triune God, and that is then to be the outflow of their love towards one another. And that is ultimately what heaven will be like in its perfection. One of my favorite sermons, maybe my all-time favorite sermon. Is, is the end, it's the last sermon in a series of expositions by Jonathan Edwards on 1 Corinthians 13. It's published in a volume called Charity and Its Fruits. Charity being the older term for love. And the last chapter is entitled Heaven, A World, of love. And it will revolutionize the way you think about heaven because it argues compellingly that eternity amongst God's people will be a world of love. And in this sermon he writes, "What calm is this? How sweet and holy and joyous" What a haven of rest to enter after having passed through the storms and tempests of this world in which pride and selfishness and envy and malice and scorn and contempt and contention and vice are as waves of a restless ocean always rolling and often dashed about in violence and fury. And then he says, what, of, what a canaan of rest to come. And then he continues on to speak of heaven. There in heaven, this infinite fountain of love, this eternal three in one, is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it. For it flows forever. And there is the... there. This glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams, yea, in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransom may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment and their hearts, as it were, be flooded with love. He say, that's the church family in eternity. And that, dare I say, ought to be the aim of the church family here below so that there's a very real sense in which our gathering as God's people ought to be the closest thing to heaven you will find on planet earth. As the love emanates between God's people, as we receive that love from above. It's to be the dominant characteristic of a family. So friend, do you love the family of God? Do you love the local manifestation of the church family? These are your people. These are my people. Yes, we aren't perfect. Yes, we can offend each other. Yes, we need to resolve conflicts when they arise nonetheless, it's the family. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, Devoted to God's Church, he speaks of an incident in which he was visiting a, a large church and on this particular Sunday at this large church, they were having a, a kind of a right hand of fellowship where they were welcoming members into the church, the new members, and and there was just an enormous group of people up front to join the church. And the pastor of the church turned to Sinclair and said, Isn't this the greatest church in the world? And Sinclair said he he had to kind of restrain himself because all morning long he had been desiring to be with his own church family. And in his mind he was thinking, actually, the same thing. Isn't my church the greatest church in the world? And yet, it dawned on him, there's a sense in which that should be the sentiment of every believer his own particular church family he's committed to. Isn't this the greatest church in the world? Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we know there's work to be done. We know the church still has remaining sins, still has spot and wrinkle, We're not naive to that. And yet at the same time, Lord, You have bought her with Your blood. She is Your family. And therefore, our family. And so, Lord, I pray. I pray for each and every member here at Sovereign Grace Chapel. I pray that you would deepen their love and devotion to one another. They would not merely love the idea of church, but the church herself, your people. I pray for those who aren't committed to a local church who may be visiting or, or maybe part of another local church, may this message encourage and bolster their love and devotion and commitment to wherever you would have them to be committed. I pray for those who are outside the family sitting here this morning, who don't know you, who aren't part of your church universal, I pray that you would bring them in the fold, that they would trust in Christ alone for their salvation, and find life eternal, and find a new family. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to close by singing You Are My All-in-All.